continue in our preaching series through Matthews, and we are in Matthew chapter 8. As I mentioned, chapter 8 is connected. We have just seen and heard Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. And at the end of that teaching, it says this, that the crowds were astonished at his teachings, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. In chapter 8, we're going to see Jesus demonstrate his authority. Matthew and the Gospels are often filled uh, with a, a teaching of Jesus and then uh, part of his life that demonstrates the truth of that teaching. And so we see that here in Matthew chapter 8. Several things that we'll see in this chapter. In the uh, first four verses, we see him healing a leper, a man who had leprosy. Um, we see in, chap in verse 7 through 13, uh, he heals a centurion's servant. In 14 through 17, um, he heals Peter's mother-in-law, and he heals many others there. And then we see this teaching on following him in verses 18 through 22. Verses 23 through 27, we see him command the storm and the seas. Uh, and then the last part from 28 to 34, he commands, his, shows his authority over uh, demons. So we see his authority over uh, the natural uh, world of God's creation, and we also see his authority over the spiritual world of God's creation. What are we to glean and gain from this? Well, let's look at what he does. When we see what he demonstrates, he calls for a response from us. First of all, let's look at what he is demonstrating. When Jesus encounters this man with leprosy, leprosy may seem um, strange to us because we don't face it much, especially in our culture and in, in our, in our, in, our um, in, in the medical advances that we have today. We don't have a lot of that going on here uh, in America. But it was a, a skin disease very grievous, and it was very contagious. And the Old Testament gave instructions for how different individuals were to be separated from the group so that they would not, one, spread the disease, and so that when they were healed, they could be identified and then removed from the, uh, the uh, separation that they had had. Now, um, if, if you wanted to put things in perspective, look at how we, not only as a nation but as a world, reacted to the COVID uh, pandemic and uh, how real that was to us and how afraid we were. We were so afraid. We, we wanted to change everything and not touch people anymore, not shake hands anymore, wear a mask everywhere we went. Uh, um, in my opinion, we just went crazy because of fear for that. And so that should help us understand some of the conditions were going on when Jesus encountered this man. But look, look at what, what happens here. Um, the man, first of all, acknowledges Jesus' authority when he says, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. That's an expression of great faith. Lord, if you want to. And I think it, it's in, in chapter 6, Jesus showed us how to pray. And here's an example of this. Praying according to God's will. 
This man understood that God could heal him. Jesus himself could heal him, but he may choose not to. It, it was his sovereign will, and he was going to pray according to so God's sovereign will. But he recognized that Jesus had the power and the authority to do that. Jesus simply says, I will. It's my will. It's my desire that you be healed. Now, he is still sovereign in his healing, and in this case, he chose to heal this man, and it was the display of his authority, and that's why he said it that way. It's my will. Be healed. And the man immediately uh, was healed. But I want you to notice the means that, that, that Jesus used. It says he, he, he stretched forth his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. Immediately his leprosy was cleansed. Jesus actually touched a leprous person. He was showing his tender care and his power over that disease that he actually physically touched this person. In the next section, Jesus is encountered by a, a, a centurion. Actually, the other gospels share with us and let us know that the centurion actually sent messengers to Jesus to ask him to heal his servant. And with this message, he says, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And after saying that, it says, Jesus says, I will come and heal him. I'll come and heal him. Jesus' willingness to heal. But the man immediately responds, no, 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 that's not what I'm asking. You don't need to come and heal him. All you got to do is say the word, and he'll be healed. You need to understand the centurion, that's a part of the Roman um, army and the Roman government. He's been assigned to this task, so he himself is not a Jew. And yet he displays this type of faith in Jesus. And since Jesus marvels at the faith that he has, the man explains, he says, look, I understand authority because I'm in authority, I'm under authority, and I have people under me, and I tell them what to do, and I expect, and they do it. He says, so you don't have to come, just say the word. He recognized that Jesus had the power to simply speak of his situation and bring healing there. Jesus says, what great faith. He gives a lesson of rebuke to people of Israel about that. He says, people are going to come from, from all the nations around the world, and they, they, they come with this kind of faith, and yet people in Israel themselves deny and don't put their faith and their trust. He says, they're going to lose out. They'll be thrown into outer darkness, he says. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This proves the, the point that we have made several times is that Jesus, in speaking the gospel, speaks of God's judgment as well as God's deliverance or his grace. He keeps them both in a proper context. Then he simply says to the centurion, Go. 
Let it be done for you as you have believed. And it says, and the servant was healed at that very moment. Again, displaying the authority that Jesus has to do this mighty work. Let's look at the next occasion that we have here in verses 14 through 17. It says, Jesus now enters Peter's house, and there he finds Peter's mother-in-law sick with a fever. Again, notice what he does. He touches her hand, and the fever leaves her. Notice her response. She begins to serve him. We're going to come back to that point. You kind of put a note in your mind there. Look at her response. Look how she responds to this healing that Jesus gives to her. But Jesus isn't done. It says that evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits, it says, with a word. With a word. In other words, he just had to speak the truth. Speak and it would happen. Just like it tells us in Genesis, in the beginning, God said, let there be, and there was. God spoke into existence. He has that power. He has that authority. Jesus himself expresses and demonstrates that exact same power and that same authority. It says he healed all who were sick. And it says this was to fulfill what the Old Testament said that he would do, that he would take our illnesses and he bore our diseases. Before I get to that next section, let's just look over at verse 23, what Jesus does there. It says, when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him, and behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. What's happening here? It says Jesus was asleep himself. In other words, he's at ease in the boat. But they're not at ease. It says they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. Notice Jesus' response. He says, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? He links our fear to a lack of faith. And that's exactly what. Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? What have you faced? In your life that has brought fear to you. If all around us, you know, the Bible reminds us that our bodies aren't going to last forever. And so we hear what the doctor has to say or we see his report or what he suggests that we do. And it causes fear in us. But Jesus is saying to us the same thing. Why do you fear? Or you of little faith. Fear is just that. It's the opposite of faith. It is a lack of trusting God to do what he's capable, willing, and promised to do. That is, he'll never leave us or forsake us. We know that God doesn't always heal or choose to heal every disease. Even the people who were healed in this day, they're no longer living now, are they? 
They weren't going to live forever. They were healed for a purpose. They were living for a purpose. But we have to trust that God will accomplish his purpose in and through us according to his will and trust in him. Why are we fearful? Let God lead the way. What is it that you would have me to do, Lord? What, what are you doing with my life? I don't know how long that's going to be, but I'm going to trust you, and that alleviates my anxieties and my fear. I'm in his hands. God wants you to trust him with the burdens, with the anxieties, with the challenges, with the doubts, with the things that arise in your life. Then this last section, he says this. He comes to the other side. Apparently, he's traveling in a boat. He comes to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, and he comes to the country of the Gadarenes. It says, two demon-possessed men meet him coming out of the tombs. And it says this, so fierce that no one could pass that way. It's speaking of an unmatched power, at least humanly speaking. No human being could deal with this type of demonic power that was being exhibited by these two individuals. But Jesus would happen to pass by that way. <laughs> and notice who's fearful. The demons recognize and acknowledge the authority of Jesus, and they say this in verse 29. They cried out. That's not a small thing. They cried out, what have you to do with us, O Son of God? They know exactly who Jesus is. James reminds us that the demons believe, and yet they tremble. In other words, they know spiritual truth and the truth about God's word or a certain truth about God himself and Jesus himself and they acknowledge that and yet they have fear. Why? Because they're on the wrong side. They're on the wrong team. Reminds me of an encounter that I had I was at the uh, each year get an opportunity for the past couple of years. I've gone to the Indianapolis 500 with the, the Dick family who has allowed me to be a part of, of, of their team and their guests. And it's a great, it's, it's a humongous event. And they sing the national, one of the things they do be in their opening ceremony before it starts is to sing the national anthem. And when the national anthem is coming to a close, uh, many of you this weekend have seen the, the, uh, the fly, uh, the, the uh, aerial display and what they, happen, what they have at the uh, Indy 500 is they have a flyover at the end of the national anthem, and they time it exactly when the singer is finishing that song of the national anthem. And what I've seen before is that, is that these, these, I don't know if they're F-22, somebody knows the exact type of, of, of fighter jet that they are, but they come in formation and they fly over, and a lot of times they're in stealth mode, which means a whisper mode and very quiet. And so it's a hush to see them come. And then they turn the jets on, and sometimes they take off almost in a vertical plane. And when those jets turn on, you not only can hear it, you can feel it. And it's as they explode into the sky. And here's what happened to, to my mind. I thought, whoa. 
I'm glad they're on my side. I'm glad they're on my side. These, this is the type of, uh, 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 of, of craft and, and, and skill that uh, uh, um, our army can, can, can fly, can use, and the kind of vessels that they have that really is unmatched. We are part of the greatest nation on earth, and I could just think, God, I'm thankful. They're not coming to get me. They're here to protect me. I'm glad they're on my side. You see, when the demons came to see Jesus, they could not say that. When they saw his display and knew of his power, they trembled, saying, what are you here for? And they said this, have you come to torment us before the time? Great truth in that statement. First of all, they understood that Jesus has his role in God's judgment. And that judgment is sure to come. And it ain't going to be fun for them when it comes. They were fearful that it had come. Are you come to torment us? The other great truth there is they're not under judgment. They're under judgment, but that judgment isn't enacted quite yet. They're free to roam and do what they want to do until God comes and brings down that total judgment. Are you here to torment us before the time? The other thing that gives us an indication of Jesus' power and his authority over them, it says in the very next verse, the demons begged him, begged him, saying, if you cast us out, send us away to, into the herd of pigs. They have to ask his permission, in fact, beg him. Who's in the authority here? Who has all the power here? Jesus is demonstrating his power, not only of the natural world, but all of the supernatural as well. He is Lord of Lords. As they stood before him, they had to acknowledge that, but they did it in great fear. You know something about uh, the sovereignty of God. It is either a fearful thought to you that God is in control or it's a comforting thought to you because you're on his side. Great power. Whose side are you on? Notice what Jesus does. He demonstrates his power. He says, go. In other words, he commands even the demons of the supernatural world. The spiritual world, he commands them. And what do they do? They do exactly what he says. He said to them, go. So they came out. And they went. They asked permission to go into the pigs. He commanded them to do just that. And they went exactly, did exactly what Jesus told them to do. What's the point of this chapter? I skipped over a portion. 
that I want to come back to. And I think it's the mountain, the emphasis of this chapter. In verse 18, it says, Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe, a scribe came up to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their dead. In this chapter, we are seeing the demonstration of Jesus' authority and his power. It is undeniable. The question is, what is your response? How do you respond to who this Christ is? Will you follow him? And he answers in this portion the question, what does it mean to follow Jesus? What does it mean to follow Jesus? Jesus teaches the cost of following him. When he says to the scribe who asked him or made the statement, I'll follow you wherever you go. Seems like a good statement, doesn't it? I'm committed to you. I'll go with you wherever you go. But Jesus explains the conditions of following him. He says, foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. What is he saying here? He's saying, if you follow me, recognize that you won't have a comfortable place to sit down and rest every time. He's saying following Jesus must take priority over comfort, rest, and stability. He says the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. What is he saying? Foxes have a place they can call home. Birds have a place that they can call headquarters and home. But me? No. I don't have a place or those who follow me will share in that same way. They won't have a place always for comfort, rest, and stability. So Jesus, following Jesus, must take priority over all of that. Think about it. When you consider, am I going to follow the Lord? Am I going to get involved in his work? And in what way am I going to do it? We usually look at our calendar. We look at our bank account. We look at how much energy and time we are willing to give over to something. And we make a calculated risk. But Jesus is saying, look, if you're going to follow me, it's not about what's comfortable for you, what's stable for you, and what you enjoy. He says, follow me. 
you may lose some stability in a place you can call home. You may lose a sense of comfort. Many people here today are tired because of the long week that they had. But they're here anyway. They're going to trust God to supply their need. But God, Jesus doesn't apologize for setting that standard. Today we want to make serving God so easy and so comfortable and so convenient. People run from place to place seeing what the church can do for them. Have they read this passage? Foxes have holes. Birds have nests. But the followers of Jesus don't always have all of those comforts. In other words, he's not saying you never will have. There are individuals who have much, and God has given them great things. But he's saying you cannot have that as your priority. You want to bargain with you? Well, pastor, you know, I'll work from this hour to this hour. I have so many weeks of vacation. Hmm, the summer I think I got maybe a day or two for church. Mm-hmm. Jesus said, don't bargain with him. Make him your first priority. Now, the second thing he says is challenging as well. Because both of these people come with a sense of commitment. The first one says, teacher, I'll follow you. The second one says, let me first, in other words, I'll follow you, but first I got to do this. Let me first go and bury my father. It sounds like a reasonable request. How mean can God be? If your father died, he won't let you go to the funeral. But the father has not died yet. What this individual is saying is, I have care for my family, for my dad. And eventually he's going to die. When all that business is taken care of, then I'll have more time to do God's work. That's what he's saying. No, and that seems reasonable, doesn't it? In our eyes it does, but Jesus says, no, uh-uh. He says, you know what? Follow me. And let somebody else take care of all of that stuff. In other words, let your highest priority be service to me. And leave the rest to any and everybody else who's going to take care of it. Let them have that as their priority. Now, this doesn't fit well with us. We live in convenient America. We don't do anything unless it's convenient for us, unless it fits our schedule, unless we can put it on the calendar. We don't like it when God says, look, swipe everything off your calendar and put me first. But isn't that what he said in the previous two chapters? Seek ye first the kingdom of God. And when he said all these things be added, he's talking about necessity, food and clothing and shelter. He's saying don't even worry about that. It's not that you're always going to go without, but he's saying 
Make him your priority. He doesn't apologize for that. He doesn't water it down any. He's not trying to make people feel comfortable or feel good. He says, if you're going to follow me, look, either you're going to accept my authority that I've demonstrated in this chapter, that I am Lord over everything and have power and authority over everything. Therefore, what do you do to somebody like that? You bow down. You submit to them. They're, they're, you, we're not in the state of ready to, to negotiate with that authority. We simply submit to that authority. Remind ourselves how he's demonstrated his authority in this chapter. Authority over leprosy and sickness. Authority over a servant who was paralyzed. Authority over fever and disease and demon possession. Authority over the storms and the sea and all of God's natural creation and authority over the spiritual world. They all Listen to him at his very voice and command, and he speaks, and they respond. And then his created creatures say, well, you know, I'll follow you when I get ready. If it's convenient, if the church is the right size, got the right kind of ministries, I'll be a part of that. Jesus says, no, you won't be my follower. Because this is what I demand of every follower. Put me first. Isn't it amazing? God never backs down from that and never apologizes for it. Oh, I know you'll be offended by this, and so uh, just hear me out on this and listen to everything I have to say, and you'll see the positives outweigh the negatives, and eventually, look, look, he says, look, this is who I am, and this is what I call you to. Now, there's some truth to it. What it does, it displays what real faith is. The Bible tells us in Hebrews, those that come to God must believe that he is, and what? That he's a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. So it's not all bad news. It's simply saying, do you have real faith? That you're willing to give up whatever it is in this life because you know that his word is true. You know deep down eternity is worth it. He's putting you at the test. Do you really trust? See, Jesus just preached the Sermon on the Mount. He is not interested in mouth service. He's interested in real faith that's anchored in him, that's shown by real action. Faith always shows itself in real action. So he says to us today, follow me. Now we want to say to him, but Lord, you don't understand. In 2023, we got all kind of stuff going on. It could be dangerous for me to stand up on my job and speak what God says or to stand even for what God says because I'm going to be tested by it. I got responsibilities, God. I got to do this and I got to do this. Don't you understand that? He said, don't you understand who I am? Don't you trust that I can take care of your needs, but I call you to unprecedented, 
unapologetic submission to me, devotion to me. Why? Because I'm God. I am who I say that I am. He proves it. Now, if he hasn't proved it in your life, you're not obligated to submit and do anything. <laughs> but challenge him, and he will prove. He'll open your eyes to let you see exactly who he is. And now the ball's in your court. Are you going to follow Christ? So I'll say to individuals who served this past week, thank you for showing your faith. Most of our people work regular jobs full-time, have families full responsibilities, and yet they come and serve Christ for whatever it is. Praise God. The example is set before us. What it looks like to be a follower of Christ is to put him first. And they're here today tired but joyful and continuing to serve. That's the testimony. That's the example of what it means to follow Christ. And then others sit by the sideline and say, I, I, I don't know. I'm not sure. That's too much to ask. I'm not ready for that yet. That's what the man who said, well, I, I, I'll do it after. After I graduate from school, then I'll come and follow Christ. After I've earned my first million, then I will come and totally devote myself to the Lord. After I get a job, after I get married, after I do this, after I do that, then I will come and serve God. After I finish my program at the mission, after I graduate, after it's all of these things that I'm putting conditions on following Jesus. Jesus says, have you seen what I've done? Do you know who I am? Come, follow me. We thank you, Father, for your call to us. You have the right to command the seas, to command demons, to tell sickness to no longer occupy this body. You have the right to command us to serve, follow you. Open our eyes so that we might see you have this right to help us to see we have the privilege to serve you, to walk in obedience to you, to live by your glory, by your grace, by your sustenance, your power, day to day trusting in you, seeing your power alive in our lives, seeing you give us energy when we thought we had none, seeing you give us joy when the world cannot understand why we're so joyful. Seeing you bring us to contentment and satisfaction in you. So Lord, 
Help us to follow you in the way that you ask. Challenge our hearts, motivate us, move us, draw us to yourself. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen.